thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So last week we have covered the um, chapter 4. We've looked at the civilization of Cain. And we've looked at it in uh, quite a bit of detail. Today we're going to continue our study of the book Genesis. Starting from the tail end of chapter 4. Specifically verse 25 and 26. And then continuing on into chapter 5. Um, I'm hoping that we're going to be able to get through chapter 5 tonight. So, uh, after, the, um, after then the, the description of the civilization of Cain, we then start talking about Set. Beginning with verse 25 then, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Set. For she said, God has appointed for me another child instead of Abel, for Cain slew him. To Set also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So, Set is then the third named son of Adam and Eve. He's not necessarily the third child in chronological order. It is obvious to us that this uh, narrative is set against a much longer one, more detailed. And the author is only picking specific uh, elements out of it because he's got a very specific point of view in mind. Much like uh, maybe a veteran of the Vietnam War would be retelling specific events out of uh, the war because of the... uh, of, of things that concerns him, and he need not bring the entire Vietnam War in, pic, in, in the picture. Uh, similarly, something like this is happening here. Now, Set is the name, the name he is connected with, uh, shite, to place, to put, uh, interestingly enough in English, to Set. Um, the birth of Set compensates for the loss of Abel, Since the word shut means foundation, it may be an indication that the world is being founded again. Um, What is implied here is that in 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 the mind of the writer, and oftentimes in many of the narrators of the Old Testament, the point of view is always uh, kingly. It's a point of view of uh, royalty. Now, a dynasty is not established until your king, until your son, ascends to the throne. That's why many a time in the old dynasties, the king will actually set, will enthrone his son as king before he passes away. He will abdicate in favor of his king. Why? In favor of his son, well, for a very simple reason. Number one, he'd like to enjoy the spectacle himself, seeing his son becoming a king. Number two... If he enthrones his son while he's alive, he will exert all necessary power to make sure that his son's reign will be secure. And and so, for instance, uh, David was still alive when he wrote the song to his son Solomon. Right? My Lord says to my Lord. Meaning, my God says to my Lord, my King, Solomon. Right? Here, Adam and Eve were created as... And given dominion over all of creation. Who is given dominion? 
the king usually is given dominion. Therefore, what you have here is royal authority given to Adam and Eve. And last time we talked at length about that, and we explained the reason why, why Cain ended up uh, killing Abel is probably uh, related to the fact that he looked at him as a threat, that Abel was actually in competition with him. And Abel died, and we saw what happened to Cain. He actually founded his own civilization apart from his father's. But in God's eyes, the succession, the line of succession, doesn't follow the natural order. So, in one sense, the book of Genesis is really the book of the curse of the firstborn. We're going to see these firstborns failing over and over and over again. Cain is the first of a long line of firstborns that simply mess up, big time. And so God will then go and pick someone, usually maybe a younger brother, and pass on the succession over to him. And he therefore becomes the older brother in the spiritual order, in the spiritual realm. So, oftentimes, physical age doesn't necessarily match spiritual maturity. And a very good example for all of us is St. Saint Teresa of um, the child Jesus. She was 25 years old when she died, yet she was 25 years old when she died, yet she is certainly not um, a novice when it comes to the ritual life. In fact, she's a doctor of the church. So, that's what's happening here with Set. He's called Foundation because even though he's the younger or the youngest of the three, Cain, um, Abel, and Set, He's nonetheless the oldest in the spiritual, in the spiritual role, in the spiritual life. And, and for all of us parents, when we look at our children, there is a lesson to, to, to bear in mind. What do Cain and Seth represent for us? They represent two types of education, two types of focus. Oftentimes, we, generally speaking, I'm not talking necessarily people, people present here, but if you look in the community at large... Even in good families, the focus is to turn up kids that would be more like Cain than they would like Set. What do I mean by that? I mean by this that we focus on their, on their scholarly achievement. We focus maybe on their physical achievement. We focus on their education at large. And we want them to be able to perform in life, and they do, and they're successful in a variety of ways. But spiritually, they are either dead or they're babes. Uh, kids who are in the, in the line of set would be kids who are really spiritually mature, therefore wise. Right? And that is something that needs to be nurtured constantly as is seen in the example of Solomon, who started being a set and ended up being a king. So nothing is given and whatever is given is not necessarily guaranteed. Right? It's an ongoing work that has to be done for all of us. It's something we need to be, to, to be born in mind for us parents and for children. Um, what it, where is your focus as kids? Are you, do you complain when your mother asks you to say the rosary because you don't have time? Do you complain when you, you're asked to spend maybe 10 minutes or 15 minutes in prayer every day? If you're not spending time in prayer every day, um, how can you really call yourself Christian? Are you car wash Catholics? You go to Mass every Sunday and that's it. You've done your duty and the rest of the week you act like pagans. And to act like a pagan, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean act badly. They're good pagans out there. They act, they, they behave themselves in a natural order appropriately. They have the cardinal virtues. Prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. They don't have to believe in God to have those virtues. Right? The only virtues that we receive by grace are the theological virtues. Faith, hope, and charity. But the pagan ones, everybody receives. Is that what you are? And here's the litmus test for all of you, for all of us. You know that we are right now entering a, um, a situation that has not been seen in a very long time. There is a global recession. The economy is hurting across the globe. It isn't just here, it's everywhere. In China, right now, 
there is 120,000 people. No, 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 no. That's a very small number. Sorry. 1.2 million people who've lost their jobs. Right? Factories are closing left and right. Here, last month, 95,000 families declared bankruptcy. Twice as much as usual. And it is, by all accounts, it is not going to get better anytime soon. Things will deteriorate, and we may be in it for a long time. If you are anxious, if you're concerned, if you're afraid of dying, all those are signs that perhaps your spiritual life may not be as deep as it ought to be. You boys in the back are listening to me, the two laughing over there? I'm not going to call you by names, but are you listening? Because I will call you by names next time around. So listen. This is important for you to understand because if you don't understand it now, it's going to be a hard lesson for you to learn when you grow up. I still remember being your age. I still remember how it was for me. And, and um, I wish that back then I had someone who would have put some sense in my head because certainly I had none. So I sympathize sympathize with you more than you can think but nonetheless the important thing is that if you truly truly think of yourself as a Christian you young people are you spending time in prayer okay. that's the question for you now you may be condemned to have to come here and listen to me because your parents are dragging you here I'm sorry for that I didn't ask for it Okay. I'm not important but Jesus is are you spending time with Him in prayer? Is He the most important thing in your life? If He is not, if He is not, who are you? Cain or Set? That is a key picture set before us and we have to think about it. You have to think about it by doing an examination conscience. This is something that is very important for all of us to consider. Who are we? Now, Seth named his son Enosh. Interesting. Enosh means to be weak. Who would name his son weak man? Why did he do that? Because Enosh had a realization, a simple one, but a fundamental one. We are weak. No matter how we dress it up, no matter how we paint it, we're weak. In so many different ways. Physically, we're weak. A flu comes by and we're all sick. Um, if it's too cold, we have to have enough clothes. If it's too warm, we're sweating. That uh, minor variation in temperature, we're not feeling well. We age. We ache. We break bones. It's easy. Mentally, we're weak. We're stressed over assignments, over studies, over finances, over life. Psychologically, we're weak. Emotionally, we're weak. And our one, number one problem is we think we're strong. This is the number, problem, number one problem we have, all of us. It's innate in us to think that we're strong. We have effect, we're effectively people who walk around being blind, being blinded by our... Um, well, original sin to begin with, but also a false assumption of who we are. There's a saying that says, guys are half as intelligent as they think they are, and girls are twice as beautiful as they think they are. And it kind of reflects on the psychology of guys and girls, where g girls tend to devaluate themselves and guys tend to inflate themselves. Right? We have a wrong image of who we are. Seth didn't. Said, recognize the truth, we're weak. So he called his son, weak man. And what happens? What happens? At that time, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Is there a relationship? Absolutely. You can't call on the name of the Lord if you are strong. You will call on the name of the Lord if you are weak. Let me put it to you in more bolder terms. You will not call usually on the name of the Lord if you have a million dollars in the bank. You will call on the name of the Lord if you're bankrupt. Alright? 
So, the reason why he thought he was weak, well, we don't really know, but one of the more, one of the clearest reasons is because, one of the most plausible reasons, I would say, is because the line of Cain was more than likely persecuting the line of Set. Why? Because, remember, Cain and his line were driven away from the ground, which was the most prized gift that God gave them, gave to their father, and, then, and they were driven away from it. But not Set. Set could still work the ground. And presumably, these people living in the city would then persecute him. And Victor Hugo, in his poem that I read to you, has that intuition that they were being persecuted. Presumably, this is the reason why he saw himself being weak. Uh, Cain killed his older brother, and now he's going after him. Obviously, we don't have any, you know, there is no, this is mere speculation, but it's plausible. Psalm 101, praise the Yahweh, call out his name, make known his acts among the people. How do you praise God? How do you call upon the name of the Lord? You make known his acts among the people. That's how. What does it mean to make known his acts among the people? Do you go waving a piece of, you know, a, a, do you put a, a piece of cardboard and, and you sort of have a declaration of what God did? No, you won't do that. How do you make known his acts among the people today? Today, how did you make known God's acts among the people? It's a question. Feel free to answer it. Did you even think about that? Did it even cross your mind? Yeah, how do you make known God's acts among His people? Do you understand the question? God does things every day. He did things today for you. How do you make those known among the people? Among your family, among your friends, the people that you know? Yes? You tell them. You tell them, but what does it assume? What, do you, what does it presuppose? It presupposes that? Yes. Have you even recognized what God did for you today? Has that even crossed your mind? Are you even aware of all the things that Jesus did for you? Okay, let me rephrase the question. Can you think of three things He did for you today? Just three. You don't have to answer me. But this is just to show, it goes to show how little faith we have. And how much we must exercise it. So how do you make known God's work among the people? The very first thing is to be aware of it. And you can't be aware of God's work in your life unless you're praying. Because your soul will not open up. You will not recognize God passing by. You'll miss Him completely. You'll miss Him because you will not see Him in that very frustrating event. You will not see Him in a game of basketball you lost. You will not see Him in a person in school that is really annoying you. You will not see Him in a really crummy day you had. You will not see Him in a child that is screaming his head off and can't, can't quiet down. You will not see Him in a kid who is sick. You will not see Him if you're not praying. And here's the kicker. I told you this before, one day all of us are going to die, right? And for some of us, it's quicker than others. For some of us, it may even be tonight. We don't know. But when we die, as we're dying, and everything is just shutting down, all our senses are shutting down, and we find ourselves in the dark, and we can't hear anybody. At that moment of our life, in the twilight, before we die, when Satan mounts his fiercest attack, Sending millions of demons against us. How will we recognize the voice of the, of, of the Lord? How will we recognize His voice? How will we hear His voice calling our name? If we're not praying? Prayer is serious stuff. It isn't optional. You will not survive. Let me tell you this way. You will not survive in this world today unless you have a very serious grounding in prayer. What does that mean? Take 10 minutes every day. Start your morning. Start your morning with saying, Jesus, I'm going to forget about you today. I know that. I am. 
but I offer you all the sufferings that come my way as a sacrifice of reparation for my sins and those of my family. And all the good things that come my way as a sacrifice of praise. And Jesus, if I forget you, don't forget me. Because you know that if you forget me, I'm going to betray you. Again. And at night, take ten minutes before you go to bed. Review your day. How did I do today? Get in the, in the habit of examining your conscience. This is so important. This is so important. Otherwise, if you're not exercising this relationship with Jesus on a daily basis, by spending time in prayer, personal time, you'll not, you, growing in the faith is going to be very slow and very difficult. Good question. What age and how? Um, my take is that at the age of 13, 14, th- kids should be able to spend 10 minutes in prayer. It's not asking too much. As to when, I think it's part of their personal responsibility to decide that. It's up to them to figure this one out. They need to take that in control. It must be their own making. Look, these kids, all of them, are very good at picking up the phone and making arrangements to meet their friends. They don't need any of us to tell them. As a matter of fact, they can do it automatically. They can do it with seven phones all at the same time. This is how good they are at it. But they can't figure out when to sit down and pray with their best friend. It's like they have this best friend. Oh, yeah, sure, we believe in Jesus. Yeah, we say the creed every Sunday. But uh, we don't have time for him. I don't have time to sit with him. I, and not only that, I don't have any appetite to talk to him. I don't know who he is as a stranger. But, uh, but I believe. I mean, who are we fooling? Cain or Seth? All right. Let's move on to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the record of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And when they were created, he blessed them and called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he begot a son in his likeness after his image, and he named him Set. After the birth of Set, Adam lived 800 years and begot sons and daughters. All the days that Adam lived came up to 930 years. Then he died. Some general comments on this. Notice that we have again a um, repetition of the creation of man. This is the record of Adam's line. Notice Adam's line. Cain doesn't exist. He's completely gone. Out of the picture. What is that reminiscent of? It's reminiscent of Abraham. Abraham calls the Lord. Take your son, your only son, Isaac. But Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. But God said, your son, your only son. Similar things happening here. Only one line is recorded, that of Set. That of Set. What is that? What is that a... um, Uh, An indication of. An indication of the fact that in heaven, only the names of those in heaven will be remembered. The names of those who are in hell will not be remembered. And here's something to meditate on. Something to think about. Because you're going to have to grapple with this. Let's assume, God willing, you go to heaven. And you're in heaven. And you're in heaven for, say, a hundred years. After a hundred years, you're going to realize, let's say you've been married and you had three kids, or twelve kids. After a hundred years, you look around, and there's only five of them up there. Out of the twelve. Five are in heaven. And you peek in purgatory, and there is nobody. You know where they are, don't you? Seven of them are in hell. How are you going to be able to be happy? Heaven is the place where you're absolutely happy, perfectly happy, completely happy. How are you going to be able to be happy? That's an important meditation. This is not a question I'm asking for you to give me an answer right now. You've got to take that in prayer. Who do you love? Your friends? 
your brothers, your sisters, your parents. They may all end up in hell. Who do you love? Who makes you happy? Do you understand why it's important for you to spend time in prayer to know the only person you can absolutely count on? No one else. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, He created them. This, is, this, this affirmation is important because it happens after the fall. It's, this affirmation tells us that even after the fall, the nature of man remains in the image of God. It's a broken image, but it is still in the image of God. And both male and female partake of that image. So therefore, the dignity of men and women are rooted in the fact that they are made in the image of God and that the fall did not destroy this image. It merely um, disfigured it. He created them. And when they were created, He blessed them and called them men. St. Jo- Saint Thomas Aquinas could very well be, be called the, the doctor of creation because his fundamental point is that we are creatures. And we don't really understand what it means to be a creature. What does it mean to be a creature? To be a creature means there are certain things you just cannot decide on. I'll give you an example. The ant. One thing about the ant that is remarkable is that the ant is a two-dimensional creature. There is no height for an ant. So the ant reaches the end of the floor, gets to the wall. Guess what? It's just the floor. Goes all the way up. And now is walking on the ceiling. Guess what? It's just the floor. There's no height. Everything is flat. Who made the ant to be this way? Not the ant. Right? It's part of who the ant intrinsically is. And the ant can jump and down as long as it wants. And it will never understand anything about the third dimension. So therefore, the ant is bounded. The end is constrained in its nature, and because it is constrained, it has the freedom to be an end. That constraint gives us the freedom of being who we are. We are human beings. We're constrained. How so? Very simple. We're constrained in the physical order. Flap your arms as long as you want. You'll not fly. Not going to work. All right? Not going to happen. We're constrained. We're not birds. That makes us human. But our biggest constraint in the moral order, in the moral order, we are absolutely constrained. We don't fabricate morality. I can't tell you what is right and what is wrong. I don't know that on my own. If God didn't reveal this to us and wrote it in our hearts, we would, know, we would not know what it is. So therefore, that tells us that we are as creatures, commanded to do certain things. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's not a wish. That's not a suggestion. That's not an idea. That's a command. It's an order. We are commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. And God will ask us to give account of how we loved our neighbors like ourselves. That's That constrains us. And this is where we have the biggest problem. I remember when I was in the university, there was this guy who was doing his PhD with me. And he was a uh, triathlon athlete. Great runner, played soccer, did amazing things. Very competitive. And one day playing soccer, somebody kicked him in the knee and fractured his knee in a thousand pieces. He ended up having to walk with a cane for the rest of his life. So I was walking with him, and he looked at me and he says, Why did this happen to me? Why didn't it happen to you? You don't need your knee after all. I needed it. That's playing God. Deciding what we need, what we don't need. Pride blinds us. If we don't examine ourselves, we grow blind and proud. And God has to whack us in the face to kind of wake us up and remind us, you're the creature, I'm the creator. Right? So here, imagine these people living in Babylon. Babylon is 
the place where the king becomes God. Babylon is the place which celebrates pride. So it was, as I told you, the New York of the, of the time, right? And, and here it is affirmed again, he created them. And when they were created, he blessed them and called them man. Notice, he created and he blessed. Okay? Um, there is here a very profound analogy we can draw on the Eucharist. Because in the case of the Eucharist, he took the bread, he broke it, and he blessed. And truly, for man to be blessed, man, sinful man, must be broken. Just like that bread. Right? Unless a grain of wheat falls and dies, it will not bear much fruit. Right? But let's leave that and keep on going. Now, he called them man, meaning of the same nature. When Adam had lived 130 years, he begot a son in his likeness after his image. Why is that affirmed here? Because it is very important for us to understand that that human nature is passed on from generation to generation. If Set is in the likeness and the image of Adam, it implies that Set is in the likeness and image of God. But Set also carries that broken image that he received from his father. This is why the text doesn't say that Set was created in the image of God, lest one thinks that Set was free from original sin, which he received from his father. And he named him Set. After the birth of Set, Adam lived 800 years and begot sons and daughters. And the days of Adam lived came up to 930 years. Then he died. <clears throat> Notice how everything is centered on sons and daughters. The whole summary of Adam's life, he was a guy who lived a long life and had lots of kids. That's how God views it. Okay? That's how God views it. Some general comments. Remember I told you that um, part of the purpose of this book is a silent polemic with the Babylonian myth. In the Babylonian mythology, there is also a story of ten antediluvian kings. Diluvian refers to the deluge, anti before the deluge. Ten kings who lived before the deluge. Just as we're going to have now ten names from Seth to Noah. There'll be ten of them living before the deluge. In the case of the Babylonian myth, these kings, their lives adds up to 442,000 years. If you put them together, that's the span of life they have. In contrast, in scripture, the years from Adam to Noah amounts to 1656. 1656. So, effectively, the account in Genesis is far more realistic than that given in the Babylonian account. So, obviously, there's again this conversation that is happening between the narrator and the prevailing culture. Alright, so, um, with that in mind, here's one interesting note. The, this is the record. This is how this chapter begins. This is the record. Well, um, there is a dialogue between two second century rabbis, Rabbi Akiba and Ben Azai, over Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18 is, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law, love your neighbor as yourself. And these two rabbis were debating that particular verse, and Rabbi Akiba proclaimed Leviticus 19.18 to be the most important rule of the Torah, of the law. But Ben-Azai argued that this verse, this is the record of Adam, was even more important than love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because without Leviticus 19.18, without it, without this is the record, Leviticus 19.18 made no sense. Without this is the record of Adam, love your neighbor as yourself makes no sense. There's a profound intuition here. We need to understand. The reason why we are commanded to love our neighbor like ourselves is because, in a fundamental sense, we share the same nature. We're not commanded to love our dog like ourselves. We're not commanded to love our rabbit like ourselves. And we're not commanded to love a rat or a snake like ourselves. All right? But we are commanded to love our neighbor like ourselves because we are all children of Adam. So tomorrow, if an alien race shows up, coming from some far distant planet, 
we are not commanded to love those aliens like ourselves. You can understand this is a very important distinction to be made about human beings. The command stems from the fact that we are one family and that we must love each other like we would love ourselves because we are all made in the image of God. Right? So, St. Francis, for instance, would always see in the leper the image of Jesus. And going back to what the question I asked you today, have you seen Jesus today? Have you seen Him? He came by. Did you notice Him? Have you paid any attention to Him when He came by? He came by at really the, probably the worst time of your day, when you were the most busy, and you probably were, were irritated too. But he came by. He knocked at the door. Love your neighbor like yourself. So, <clears throat> yeah. I told you about then this relationship between who we are and this notion of loving our neighbor as ourselves, which is very important. This is something that St. Francis understood at a very, very profound level. When Seth had lived 105 years, he begot Enosh. We talked about him. After the birth of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and begot sons and daughters. All the days of Seth came to 912 years, then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he begot Kenan. And the birth of Kenan, after the birth of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and begot sons and daughters. What is being mentioned here is always that line. Where do you find that line, by the way? Where else do you find that line in the Bible? Not the parents. I'm expecting the kids. That genealogy, the line of genealogies. Where else do you find it? Where? Very good. Where? Describing Jesus' ancestry. Where? Very good. It's one of the Gospels. This is very good. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel is strange in this fashion. If you were to tell the story of your parents, let's say you decide to write the story of your parents, right? Would you start like this? Let's say, for instance, uh, uh, Joseph back there. You decide to write the story of your dad. Would you start like this? The genealogy of my dad, son of David, son of Adam. Would you start with Adam? Adam begat, and he begat, and you'll have a whole, like, 30 pages of begats with lots of Italian names in it? (laughs) You wouldn't, right? Nobody does that. So why did St. Matthew start it this way? There's a fundamental reason why that I'll tell you about right now. Jesus was promised to be of the line of David. He was supposed to be a king. But remember what happened in 587, back to Babylon. The last known king of Judah was, had his eyes plucked, his children were killed before him, and he was taken into exile. What happened to the line? It's broken. That was a tragedy of incredible um, proportion for the Jewish people. Because the, how, could God, how could God fulfill this promise of the Messiah born of David when the, king, the, the royal king was broken? So as soon as St. Matthew starts with, this is the genealogy of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham, any Jew, any Christian of Jewish background reading this will jump. What? The line was not broken? No, the line was not broken. You have a royal line, I'm going to give it to you. And so the first sets of 14 names are all in Scripture. They're here. The last set of 14 names are unknown. What do you suppose he got them from? Where did he get those last set of 14 names which are not mentioned in the Bible? Yes? Almost. Yeah, the Holy Spirit, but through whom? Uh, Jesus. Okay. But he wrote it after the Lord ascended in heaven, so you have to talk to another human being. Mary? Close. Joseph. Joseph. So who's St. Joseph then? Herod was not a Jew. Herod was an Edomite. The real king was hidden. His name was Joseph. That's what he's telling them. That's why it's so important. Yes, yes. We have no reason to doubt that they lived that long. 
The mere fact that we don't live this long does not imply that no other human could have lived this long. And if you remember, I told you a little bit about the singularity last time, how we are on the cusp of extending human life a thousand years. There is no reason why they could not have lived that long. The mere fact that we can't have a scientific proof of something does not disprove its existence. Simple as that. Correct. Yes. Well, God didn't make Adam and Eve immortal in the sense that Adam and Eve could not die. They could still die. But what he gave them is the uh, ability not to be affected by age or by disease. But, exactly, but, he, but Adam could have died if he had fought, say, Satan. And Satan may have killed him. Right? So that's part of the, 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 the lecture we talked about. Alright, all the days of Kenan came to 910 years, then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he begot Mahalalel. After the birth of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and begot sons and daughters. All the days of Kenan came to 910 years, then he died. So, I'm going through all these. I'm not going to read all of them. I'm just going to highlight a couple, which are really, which are, re- I mean, one in particular who's really important. So, Mahalalel gave birth to Jared, and then he lived 895 years. Jared gave birth to Enoch, and he lived 800 years. And when Enoch had lived 65 years, he begot Methuselah. And after the birth of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years. And Enoch walked with God, then he was no more, for God took him. Um, this is verse 23. God took him. Here we, have a, we differ... If you read the Jewish commentaries, as I do when I prepare these Bible studies, and then you read the Fathers of the Church, you will see here a very clear break. All the Jewish commentary indicate that he was no more is a euphemism to say that he died. But there's really no explanation why suddenly this euphemism is used. Why would they say that he died? Why would the Jews affirm that Enoch died? Anybody can give me a reason? Very simple. They don't believe in a resurrection. That's why. And you might argue, well, what about, uh, what about Elijah being, being taken into a chariot? They would explain that he's hidden. He didn't go to heaven. He'll come back. There's no belief in a resurrection. Remember the Sanhedrin? Remember the argument between Jesus and the Sadducees? Well, it still carries forward. So you've got to remember that the Jewish religion today has almost nothing to do with the Jewish religion of the prophets. There's no sacrifice. There's no covenant. There's no belief in the resurrection. A very different thing. And we we should not confuse them. Otherwise, our conversation with them would sound very strange. In other words, we inject, we project on them beliefs we have, thinking that they have as well. Not necessarily. Okay? Okay? Whereas the fathers would affirm that this expression essentially says that Enoch was a righteous man and God took him into heaven. And so in heaven, there are three people who are there, body and soul. Enoch, Elijah, and Our Lady. And that's one way to argue against Protestants who might tell you, well, why do you say Mary went to heaven, body and soul? Well, that's why we say it. If Enoch and Elijah, who are lesser in the order of grace than Our Lady, went to heaven, uh, body and soul, why why wouldn't she be able to do the same? And um, Methuselah, what is so specific about Methuselah? What is so particular about him? You don't know? Yes? He's not the, yeah, well, yeah, everybody is sort of the firstborn here. But what is so specific about Methuselah? What record does he hold? The oldest. The longest lived of them all is Methuselah. Oddly enough, ironically enough, the one with the shortest life gave birth to the one with the longest life. And there's no coincidence there. It's the order of grace, obviously, that plays here. 365 years, which makes somebody think that, well, that's the number of days, of obviously the, the, the number of days that the earth rotates around the sun, therefore there's a relationship there. I don't see it personally. I don't see why 365 years being number of days that the earth goes around the sun would be an indication of perfection. Um, so I don't, I don't give much attention to that, to, to this kind of uh, commentary. He was righteous. Walking with God. Yeah. By the way, walking with God, if you read the prophet um, uh, Malachi, 
with a slight variation, walking with God, is the description of the holy priest. So the holy priest is the one who walks with God. But that also applies to our children, where we again ask the, the question, have you been walking with God today? By the way, Methuselah's name is variously interpreted as either the man of the weapon or the man of the infernal river. Not a pleasant name, again. And it's a hint about the life that they led, presumably under the constant persecution from the civilization of Cain. Now, verse 28, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he begot a son, and he named him Noah saying, This one will provide us relief from our work and from the toil of our hands out of the very soil which the Lord placed under a curse. Why would he say that? Why would he say about Noah that this one will provide us relief from our work and from the toil of our hands out of the very soil which the Lord placed under a curse? Notice, which the Lord placed under a curse. There is no ambiguity in the mind of Lamech that God placed the, the soil under a curse. So why would he say that? Yes, it can be explained by a very simple um, contextual reference. And that is, Noah is the first to be born after the death of Adam. And the thought here on Lamech's part might have been that since Adam died, the curse would die with him. Unfortunately, it doesn't. Okay? This one will provide us relief from our work and from the toil of our hands out of the very soil which the Lord placed under a curse. Now, remember, this is the tenth generation. Noah is the tenth generation. What does the number ten represent? The ten commandments. Yes, but why is it ten? Very good. Why is it ten commandments, not twelve, not eight? Why ten? What about ten? Ten in Scripture is always a symbol of fullness. Completion. Right? And this is something most Protestants miss completely, and then they go on a tangent talking to us about the millennium. You know, the reign of Jesus on earth for a thousand years? You've heard that, haven't you? Why do they get confused? Because it speaks of, then he will reign for a thousand years. Well, what is a thousand in terms of ten? Can anybody tell me? Yes? Ten times ten times ten. Ten times ten times ten. Now, Here's the deal. In Hebrew, there's no superlative. So, I want to say good, I'll say good. I want to say better, I'll say good, good. I want to say best, good, good, good. That's why we say that the Lord is what? Holy, holy, holy. Why repeat it three times? Because we're really saying the Lord is the holiest. So, what is thousands? Ten, ten, ten. It's the perfect completion. So when he says he reigns a thousand years, it means it's a perfect reign. That's all. See how misunderstanding words in their proper context gets you going on a tangent and you write books about this and you make movies and you're completely off track. So relief. Why did he say that he's going to bring us relief? Well, according to a tradition found in the Midrash Tanuma, it's one of the most popular commentary on Scripture. Noah was the inventor of the plow. So he is the initiator of true agriculture versus horticulture. You know, horticulture is the cultivation of flowers or plants, individual plants. Agriculture is the cultivation of the field. So the invention of the plow was absolutely revolutionary to increase the yield. And hence it brings relief because there's more food with less work. Also, he's the... He's, um, He's um, credited with planting the vine and starting viticulture, as you know from the rest of the story. Now, St. Ephraim points out that this prophecy extends to the entire human race. And Origen points out that this prophecy is applicable to Christ. So this text here that I just read to you, uh, if I can find it back again, about uh, Noah bringing us relief, that particular text then applies also to... To Jesus. He's the one who brings us relief from our toil. Right? And then Noah waits 500 years before he has a child. Actually, he has three. Right? You've got to remember those names. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
Now, he waits 500 years, and it's really not known why, but the fathers of the church see in him virtue. So either he abstained for 500 years, which indicates a virtue uh, of virginity, and that is one way to look at it, or they've been trying for 500 years. Imagine trying for 500 years. Yeah. Which indicates the virtue of patience. Perseverance. Perseverance. All the things he's going to need. Hope. Right? Exercising all those virtues. So Noah is truly a virtuous man. That's the message here. Right? Remaining faithful to the same wife for 500 years. That doesn't make a man a saint. I don't know what will. And a woman a saint. I don't know what will. 500 years. Think about that. Try to imagine a lifetime of 500 years waiting for, to have a child. Not just living that long. Th- living that long righteously without the sacraments. I mean, you, gotta, you have to develop a sort of a devotion for these, for these men and women you'll find as we, as we traverse Genesis. You truly have to have a devotion for them because they're amazing examples for us. They're incredible examples. And besides, God willing, you will meet them. They're up there. Shem, in meaning, is name, fame, renown. And it's probably abbreviated from Shemuel or the like. Shem, was supposed, Shem is the el, eldest son of Noah. Therefore, he's supposed to be the one to inherit. Keep that in mind when we come back last time, next time we talk about that. Ham is obscure in origin. In, 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 um, in the Psalms, like Psalm 78 and 105 and 106, Ham is synonymous with Egypt. Right? And then Japheth is meaning, the meaning is unknown. So I told you about his virtue and about his ability to be so patient. So, here's one last thing I'm going to tell you about today's um, reading. If you now juxtapose the civilization of Cain on one hand, the civilization of Seth on the other, the civilization of death, the civilization of life, you see God's patience, 1,656 years. But you see the pattern, and it's going to emerge next week even better. This is the pattern that God uses with us continuously. Seth represents, and his children represent the church, represent the people of God. Cain represents the world, represents civilizations rising in opposition to the church. God remains patient until what? What triggers God's curses? What is the one singular event that triggers God curses? God's curses. Yes. Correct. But in 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 after the fall, what will trigger that? What triggers that is when the people of God, the church, gets to a point where good is named is called evil and evil good. In other words, when the priestly order of the church stops striving for holiness and starts striving for comfort and compromise with the world, that's what triggers the curses. So now, that's what's, the question is, is this what's happening today? What is really important behind this question is to start to see the world biblically. You become men and women of God when you look at the world in light of Scripture. You use the Scriptures as a pattern to help you understand the world. What is that called? Wisdom. It's called wisdom. That's wisdom. And that's prophecy. Those are the two gifts that are promised to all of us by the Holy Spirit. Wisdom and prophecy. So, interestingly enough, yesterday I'm listening to a program on the radio. And these people are talking about stuff that really blew my mind away. I didn't know that. I don't know if you knew that. There are right now 28 states, 28 states here in the United States, who passed legislations to the effect that if the federal government 
decides to restrict the Second Amendment, they will not abide by that law. They had two representatives on this program, two House representatives, one from Oklahoma, the other one from Colorado, one of whom is named Charles Keyes. I don't know the guy, but he's a House representative. And they've asked him, Mr. Keyes, do you believe that the federal government has been sold to international banking interest? And his answer is, absolutely. Think about what that means. Think about the potential consequences of states passing laws saying, this is where we draw the line. They are introducing legislation in, um, in the Federal House of Representatives to allow the general attorney to restrict guns. And he already stated that he wants to ban semi-automatic guns and rifles, which amounts to about 80% of all guns in a nation. Do you understand what that means? Right? And that... Now... We hope nothing will happen, right? We hope nothing will happen. But if you observe those events, being prudent, not to jump to conclusion too quickly, neither discounting them, but keeping an eye on what is happening in light of Scripture, you begin to enter into conversation with Jesus. Lord, what are you up to? At the end of the day, we know and believe that you are the King of Kings, the Lord of history. Nothing in history escapes you. And if this is happening, it is for our greater good, for the greater good of the church. Now, if you call some of us to suffer for some time, as you tell us in the book of Revelation, maybe you call some of us to martyrdom, maybe you call some of us to endure. In all cases, Lord, give us the grace to do your will. We prepare ourselves for whatever, whatever is going to come our way. I'm not saying I know what's going to happen. I don't know. You understand? I'm not telling you this is going to happen. I'm not trying to be a prophet here. All I'm trying to say is this is how you read the world in light of the patterns you see in Scripture. And we're going to see this pattern today repeated over and over again throughout all of Genesis. That same pattern repeats. Because this is how God deals with us. And the book of Genesis is there to teach us this pattern in a very applicable way. And by the way, what I just told you on the macro level applies to you personally, on your personal moral life. Are you too distracted by yourself, by your self-image? Are you really focused on how do I look and what do I dress? Or how much muscle mass I have and how high I jump? Is that the focus of your life? Has it been such that you actually are forgetting God? You're forgetting that you're a creature? Guess what he's going to do? You know, he might send you a rash on your face. Okay? He might get you to break a leg. His way of saying, slow down. We need to talk. You're not paying any attention to me. Where are you going? Do you have any idea where you're going? Yeah. He's the creator. He can do whatever he wants with you. Do you understand that? So therefore, pray that you may know His will for you today. And it's okay if you're praying to get to know His will because you're afraid for your own sake. That's okay. It's not the best and purest intention, but you know what? He'll take it. He'll be really happy with that. You're paying attention to Him. So for no, no other reason, because you don't want to have an acne, Pray. Or you don't want to break a leg playing basketball. Pray. It's okay. He'll take that. These are serious times. These are important times for you especially. And prayer is going to be, must be the center of your life. The most important thing you do. And so with that, let us finish with a word of prayer, and then we'll come back with questions. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you and praise you for all the good inspirations that you may have given us tonight. 
We ask you, Lord, to give us the grace and the will to put them into effect. Lord, we know how difficult it is for us to truly live a Christian life in this world. So, bear with our weaknesses. Make us patient, Lord. Patient with ourselves, patient with others. And help us to grow in your love every day of our lives until we reach heaven. And we pray, when we ask this, as we pray, the prayer that you have taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, now and forever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Questions? What was the connection between people living less after the flood? There is really no explanation that we have. There are some suggestions, some thought. There's a priest who wrote a book where he collected a whole set of evidence. It's an older book, though. It is an interesting theory. Don't know to what extent it's true. His, his take is that before the flood, people never saw the sun. Earth was covered with clouds continuously. And that that had an effect on longevity. He brings to bear a whole bunch of different facts. And that when he, they saw, that's why it's so important when he said, I will show you the rainbow. Because when the rainbow showed up, that was the first time they ever saw the sun. And then when this happened, nature changed and their longevity changed as well. It's one theory. We really don't have any particular... We don't have really good, re, good explanation for it. It's a good question. Okay. So there's two things. There's the rosary and there's personal prayer. Right? In both instances, if you think about the duration of that prayer, 15, the rosary is said in 15 minutes usually. Nobody's going to die if they sit 15 minutes. Right? Nobody. <laughs> If you, if you were asking them, sit here for two hours, it's a different story. And if you play a movie, it's, you know, it's well, wait for a movie. That's exactly. Right? And so that's the test, right? Okay, if you sit a rosary, I'll let you go play a game. See how they perk up. <laughs> right? So, no. You, you, we have to induce discipline in them. We have to realize also that as soon as you talk about prayer, right? As St. Peter said, you're not just fighting yourself. You're fighting the devils, the world, and the flesh. All three conspire to create this artificial, depressive state. Oh, I'm tired. Right? But they're really not tired. It's just that that's the, there's pressure being put on them, and it's an uphill battle. Prayer will be initially an uphill battle. The rosary oftentimes will always be an uphill battle for most people. Right? That's the nature of the prayer. But personal prayer, if they persevere in personal prayer, then as they enter into these mansions, St. Teresa in her book, The Interior Castle, speaks of seven mansions. When they reach, God willing, the third and fourth mansion, the nature of things change. And, and so perseverance in prayer is fundamental. It's, it's like muscles. right? They're doing push-ups. When they start, they may be able to do two. But if they persevere, they can build up to 60. Same thing. Well, no. What I would recommend for personal prayer is the following format. You, you, you have to have a timer, and you have, you have to be able to sit in a quiet place. And a quiet place where you can actually turn off all the lights, eventually. You start with Scripture. Open Scripture. Read a small paragraph, like five lines. Slowly. Right? And if nothing catches your attention, keep on reading. But eventually something will. As soon as this happens... Set the, the book aside, turn off the light, and focus on this. So start with glory to God. Because you want to glorify the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit when you begin. Start with that. Glory to God, our Father. Right? Very simple. Then you read this passage, you close your eyes, and you imagine you're right there. Right in that scene. Let's say it's the uh, woman caught in the act of adultery. They're brought, they're brought to Jesus. Jesus is about to say something. Well, put yourself right there in the crowd. And watch Jesus. Watch the woman. Imagine what's going on. What was she doing? Why? What, what happened? How, why are those so, so, these men so heartless? And let God, then let the Holy Spirit, open your mind to something He needs to tell you. So this is not contemplation. This is really a prayer of the mind. But it's very fruitful. 
if you persevere in this prayer long enough, what ends up happening eventually is God is going to come in and quiet down all your senses. And then you enter into contemplation, which is really silence. And in that case, it gets really interesting because they ask an old nun, when you pray, what do you say? She's been at prayer for a long time, right? She looked at them, she said, well, I look at him and he looks at me. Which for us, if you've never been in contemplation, makes no sense. But if you understand true love, it makes perfect sense. Because in true love, there's no need to exchange words. You just have to look. That's the whole exchange. So that's the intimate union with, with Jesus, what, what, which is what He wants to invite us to. And as everybody starts to get into this contemplative life, their entire makeup, their entire quality of life changes in completely. The fruits are amazing. So here's the other question. How do I know if my spiritual life is fruitful? Whatever kind of prayer you have right now, how do you know if you're making progress in your spiritual life? Pardon? Actions of the day. Actions of the day. Most, more specifically, the virtues. Right? The virtues. Are you growing in the virtues? If you're growing in the virtues, your spiritual life is fruitful. Even if it feels completely dry and you're distracted, can't even think straight, it doesn't matter. That's how you judge it. You judge it by the f- virtues. Are you growing in all the virtues? If you are, your spiritual life is fruitful. Any other question? Very good. God bless you. And we'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.